Shishom down from the mountain. Now, Luke, as he tells this incident, you know, Jesus is going to come down with Peter, James, and John, and there is a father with a demon-possessed boy. And it is uh, remarkable. And then right after that, of course, there's an issue with the the tax collectors wanting to know if Jesus is going to give tribute. So it's just like that, isn't it? You go from the mountaintop where you're amazed with what's going on back down to the valley with demons and tax collectors. It just uh, never seems to change. And, uh, you know, the, the Lord, it's funny because Peter said, Lord, let us build three tabernacles here. But the mountaintop is never where we abide. You know, God takes us to the mountaintop to invest in us because there are those down in the valley that are so broken and so empty. And so many of our lessons need to take place in the valley. You know, it's like Valley 101, Valley 102. They're, they're mandatory courses, not electives. And and so our, our journey is one of mountains and valleys. It's interesting. It says of Israel of old, that they had to learn that their God was the God of the mountains and of the valleys, that the unsaved people didn't believe that. So here's Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have seen him in his glory with Moses and Elijah. The Lord has told them not to say anything. You can imagine how hard that was, particularly for Peter. And they come down the mountain and they they encounter now this scene of Bedlam with the scribes and his disciples and this demon-possessed boy. It says, And when they were come to the multitude, Luke says they were come down, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, if you can imagine, and saying, and evidently the disciples and the scribes are watching, Lord, he says, have mercy on my son, Dr. Luke says, he says, he's my only child. So he has no daughter. He has no other boys. He has this one boy. We never hear as we go through the passage, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, his mother and I, or back home, his mother. You know, we don't know if he's a single dad, a single parent. Uh, I know many of you are. Um, Many of you listening probably are. So Here is this father, this one parent who brings his only child, and he says to Jesus, he is lunatic. Some of you may think that, but it was a different thing back here. He's lunatic. He's moonstruck. That was a sign of insanity in that day. Um, He falleth into the fire, and he says, and often into the water, Now, Mark tells it to us um, this way. He says that, uh, and one of the multitude answered, said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. He doesn't say lunatic there. And wheresoever he, the spirit, taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and then he gnashes, he grinds his teeth, And he pineth away. And I spoke to your disciples, and they could not cast him out. Uh, Luke, the doctor, tells it to us this way. It says, uh, Behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he's my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly screams, he crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth. Again, and then bruising him, the spirit hardly departs from him. I came to your disciples, they couldn't handle him. So there's a story here. There's a father with this son. This son, it's told to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is possessed. Mark says a deaf and dumb spirit. Well, the spirit was able to hear Jesus when he told him to leave. But we don't know how often that is manifesting. And the father in the scene seems to be alone. And he's lost his fatherhood. He's relegated to a caregiver. Now, that's a difficult situation for anyone. Even when the person you're caring for 
is in their right mind, they're coherent, you can communicate with them, they're just struggling with an illness or some other things going on. But this is a man that's been robbed of his fatherhood. He's not sat down to teach his son how to fish in the Sea of Galilee. He's not watched his son prepare for bar mitzvah. He's not sat and had a conversation with his son about the facts of life. He's not taught him a trade. He's a caregiver. Because this boy often is cast by this demon into the water and into the fire. It looks like suicide. And the father has to be filled with questions. Why God? Why me? Why my son? Why this? And he's hearing of this prophet from Nazareth, this one who had been healing so many. And he comes, and Jesus isn't there, but the disciples are there. So he comes and he begs the disciples to take authority in the situation and cast out this demonic spirit. Look, and as we look at this, we see how satanic suicide is, the, the influence here of, to destroy him, to throw him into the fire, throw him into the water. Uh, you know, the enemy, love, he's come to kill and to destroy. He's a liar and a deceiver. He says, I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Now Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. He says, O you know, thou faithless and perverse generation. It's interesting, faithless is, is in the present tense, constantly being faithless. Perverse is the perfect tense, has been and continues to be. It's kind of interesting. Perversion always follows faithfulness, faithlessness. One follows the other. When a generation is faithless, it is always perverse. When there's no higher authority, there's no God there's nothing that, that somebody can appeal to when a generation is faithless. It becomes perverse. We live in the middle of that to a large degree, obviously. He says, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring the child to me. So there's no help in religion. The scribes were there. They hadn't been able to do anything. They're probably watching the whole process here. And then the, the appeal is, bring the child to me. Look, for, for all of us struggling with teenagers or prodigals or our kids in one way or another, even in physical illness, uh, behavior, whatever it might be, the, 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 taking them to church, taking them to religion, I'll send them to Christian school, they'll do the job for me. None of that is a reality. The, 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 the goal is to get your kids to Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is to get your kids to Jesus. You know, I, I look at parents that have miscarried or they've lost a babe, the SIDS or something, and, and you want to console those people. But on the other hand, I think to myself, well, the goal of every parent is to get their kid to heaven. Nothing else really matters in the long run, whatever they accomplish, how much money they make, whether it be a sports star, whatever. You know, the goal of that parent is to get that kid to heaven. And in one sense, you know, those parents have succeeded in that, that respect and that, that life is reserved and secure and they have eternity with that child, you know. This father is tormented in his situation. I think for all of us, the advice is bring our children to Jesus. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Mark tells us something wonderful. Uh, Jesus said, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. So it wasn't like, you know, the dad sees his kid act weird a week later and think, oh no, he's back. No, no. 
Jesus cured the kid. When he cures your kid, your kid is cured. He says, come out of him and enter no more into him. What a blessing. This father has that assurance as this kid then, you know, what was it like for him then? You know, because so often, how, how often had he tried to communicate? How often? And then all of a sudden that kid's eyes changed and he saw, you know, this kid had company. He saw a different look. He saw a different spirit. How often had his love or his attempt to just to be a dad been interrupted and sabotaged and destroyed? And all of a sudden, what was it like for this dad, you know, to look? And the eyes are looking back to talk and a voice is talking back to embrace. And a son is embracing back to say, I love you. And to hear that come back, I love you, Dad. Abba. Just imagine. Passage for us, a life, a reality, this human that is touched by the love of Jesus and his power. It says, then, in verse 19, came the disciples to Jesus apart as they went aside. And they said, why could not we cast him out? In other words, he had sent them out before they were casting out demons, they were healing the sick and cleansing lepers. No, they're saying, well, you know, what was the deal? How come we couldn't cast this one out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence yonder place, and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible to you. I'm sure as they hear him say that, they think of the book of Zechariah where it says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord under Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and so forth. So it isn't as though they hadn't heard that before. Jesus is saying, now look, if you have faith as, not not you, not you a literal grain of mustard seed, but if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, as, you know, uh, I, I don't understand exactly all of what that means, you know, because the Lord would speak that to me. I think of things, and you can think of things in your life. Lord, we prayed for that. It didn't change. Lord, why... Why didn't I have the courage to do this? Or why didn't I have the words to say this when it happened? Or Lord, why, you know, just I seem powerless in this situation. And and, and I think, you know, he he would say, look, he, he comes down from above. He, he, he was there in glory with Moses and Elijah. He was, and yet he had come to then come down and walk among us. He says, if you have faith of a grain of mustard seed, I do know this about a seed. And I was reminded this year because we were all locked down, so my wife may be playing a garden. You know, but just looking at seeds again, just, you know, one thing about a seed is it knows which way is up and it knows which way is down somehow. And it looks for light instead of darkness. It responds to being watered as we should respond to the watering of the word. And if we have faith, it doesn't matter that it's planted in this dirt we have faith like a seed it responds to light it responds to nourishment it responds to watering it responds to growth Um, I, I think that's all we can expect we can keep in his word we can depend upon the power of the spirit we can understand that he's involved in our lives that he left glory to come and walk among us uh, that he stoops down to the very needs in our lives. And wonderfully, I think he says, look, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, how be it this? Now, this is interesting, verse 21. If you have a gloss that says some of the best manuscripts or oldest don't have this verse, that's baloney. Uh, it's easily attested for in old and accurate manuscripts. How be it this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. This kind, this genos, this 
you know, we, we know there are principalities and powers in this realm of darkness. Genos is a race. Genos is a family. Genos, the, the idea is a tribe. So he must be saying this particular kind of spirit. It, it, it's not one that's going to yield unless it's encountering someone who in their, has a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, someone whose relationship is genuine. Look, prayer is what attaches us to the spiritual world, and fasting is what disattaches us to this world. You know, and I know, look, some of us have diabetes, some of us has hypoglycemia, some of us, we can't fast. Well, you can fast from TV for a couple of days. That's a killer. Not these days, though. It's a blessing not to see what's on for a couple of days. You can fast from social media. You can fast from uh, sugar. All right, Pastor Joe, I'm not coming anymore on Wednesday night. You know, you can pass from ice cream for a couple. You can. There, there are ways that we can practice some discipline, you know, in giving ourselves to the Lord in prayer and just say, Lord, I want to take these few days away from this. And there's a place there. And he, he says this particular genos, this, this breed of demon, whatever it is, doesn't come out, except, you know, there's a lifestyle of this genuinely, genuinely attached to heaven and less attached to this world. Uh, interesting exhortation. Now, while they abode in Galilee, and that's where they are, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And look, it says, and they were exceedingly sorry. Now, Peter, James, and John, more than the others, should realize he's no victim. We just saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah talking about the decease he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So there's no victimization here. He is willingly giving himself in this, in this picture. Look, over in verse 12... When Jesus had talked to Peter and James and John on the way down, he said, I say unto you that Elijah is already come, talking of John the Baptist, and they knew him not, and they have done to him whatever they listed. Likewise, so also the Son of Man suffer of them. They're going to do to him whatever he wants. Likewise, the Son of Man, who you just saw in glory. Now he adds a layer to this that they hadn't heard before. It surprises them. When he says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, that's the first time, and it's a new idea for them. And it will cause them, no doubt, to think, who's going to betray him? You know, And we know at the table they're going to say, is it I, is it I, is it I? You know, uh, One of you betrayeth me, and said so they all started to say, is it me? So here he says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again, which they don't get, they don't hear. Uh, and they were exceedingly sorrow here because they didn't get the whole picture. That's why he told them, don't tell anybody who I am until I'm raised out from among the dead. That's when the picture is going to start to become clear to you. And now in verses 24... Down to verse 27, we have this interesting um, account of the religious people saying to Jesus' disciples, to Peter in particular, isn't your master, doesn't he pay tribute like so they encounter these, not exactly tax collectors, it wasn't a Roman tax, it was a temple tax, so this is a religious uh, ordinance. And uh, isn't your master, and you know, then Jesus says, well, you know, Matthew is the only one who gives it to us because he was a tax collector, so he was particularly interested in this. And of course, you know the story where he throws in the hook, brings a fish out, and has the tax in his mouth. You love it when Jesus does that, don't you? Try that at home. Honey, we can't afford uh, the taxes this year. I'm going fishing. Uh, it's biblical. So only Matthew uh, gives this to us. And when they were come to Capernaum, now this is their last 
visit to Capernaum before the crucifixion. When they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now, Peter, of course, is going to say yes. We don't know why he said yes. Uh, we know, in the, and Mark tells us in the Transfiguration, he said what he said because he didn't know what to say. Did he hear not know what to say, so he just said yes? Or did he know what to say and say yes? We just, this is Peter, he's going to say something. Now, this is in regards to the tribute money. Look, um, I'll read a passage to you from Exodus. This money is for the maintenance of the temple. It was for the maintenance of the tabernacle. It, it was, first of all, not a Roman law, and it was not even a Jewish law. It, it, so it, could, it couldn't really be enforced. And by the time Christ came, it had kind of evolved. Originally, we're not given a lot of information, but it doesn't seem that it was something that was yearly, that happened on a regular basis. Of course, by the time Christ comes... And, and the, the, the House of Annas and Caiaphas are running everything. Tradition had developed through the centuries, and now it had become a yearly thing uh, where the males would pay a tribute, half drachma, uh, two, two, no, one drachma, two drachma, make a stator. They would pay it, and it would go to the temple in Jerusalem, and it, and it would sustain the temple, but millions of dollars in silver would come in. Uh, Josephus tells us about the, the vaults that were filled with silver in the temple when the Romans took it, and yet there were starving people through Israel and widows and so forth. Here in Exodus, said the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Exodus 30, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel, when you number them after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul. Isn't that interesting? Unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. And they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gera, just tells you so you would know. Half a shekel shall be unto the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. They are to give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, and thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and thou shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So isn't it interesting? It says it's an atonement money. It's given to support the work of the tabernacle and so forth. And here they come to Peter and say, isn't your master, isn't he going to do this? So at this point in the beginning of the month of Adar, which is basically our march, on the first of Adar there would be a proclamation that it would be the month that the tribute would be collected for the temple. It would start in Jerusalem and then on the 15th of Adar it would move to the outlying districts. And they would set up booths, like a tax collector's booth. And then from the 15th to the 25th, it would be collected through Galilee and the different areas and so forth, uh, where, where they're collecting at this point in time. After the 25th of Adar, if anybody wanted to give, they had to come to Jerusalem to do that. They wouldn't take money from a pagan. They wouldn't take money from somebody under 20 years old. They obviously, they didn't collect from the priests because they were in on the take. Imagine that. Uh, if you, for some reason, were unable to contribute and you lived in a foreign land, 
and you came on Passover or Pentecost, you could give your tribute then. So by this time, it evolved into this giant undertaking, which was not, you know, stipulated in the law, but they were to give this ransom money to make atonement. It's interesting. And it was their way of giving something to support the work of the Lord. So they said to Peter, doesn't your master pay tribute? He says, yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. The idea is Jesus spoke before he got a chance to say anything, because Jesus knew what happened. Jesus, anticipating, said, what thinkest thou, Simon? Now, I don't know if he should have said yes, or instead of calling him Peter, he calls him Simon. That's his old name here, you know. He says, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And Peter said to him, Of of strangers. And Jesus then said, Then are the children free. You know, Peter had said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And it's such irony here that Jesus is being challenged about giving ransom money. He himself was the ransom money. He himself was the atonement. And then they're they're kind of pushing, isn't your master going to do this? You know, like, you know, certainly he's a righteous man. Certainly, you know, nobody finds fault with him. Certainly he's up. Certainly he's going to do this. And when Peter comes in, the Lord doesn't wait for him to talk because he knows Peter already said yes. Peter, you said yes. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, do the king's kids pay tribute? Or does he take tribute from the, the people in the kingdom and the stranger? And he said, well, from the stranger. He said, well, then, Peter, the children are free. You know, I don't know if he's saying you shouldn't have said yes. The next word is great, nevertheless. And I think it's at the center of this whole passage he says notwithstanding nevertheless whatever your translation says there nevertheless notwithstanding lest we should offend them go thou to the sea and cast an a hook and take up the fish that first comes out now look jesus says this notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, how many times in our lives, and this isn't easy, there's something we know we don't have to do. You know, you can do the right thing the wrong way. And sometimes you think you're going to do this just to win an argument. When you do it that way, you know, you're never the winner. Here's Jesus. Here's the master. He said, we don't have to do this. We're free. Peter, we don't have to put up with this. Notwithstanding. So we don't stumble them. So do we don't put a stumbling block in front of them. The scandal on. It's the part of the trap where the bait is attached. Jesus knows how the enemy will take this and use it. You know, there's things in our lives we should do just walking uprightly, not because we have to, just because, you know, you're giving ammo to the enemy sometimes, demanding your rights, even though you're right in what you're saying. And Jesus, remarkably here, he says, just do it. You know, let's go. Let's just give it to them. He says, lest we should offend, scandal on, stumble them. Then he says this to Peter. Go thou to the sea, Galilee, and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. Now look, this is the only time in the New Testament this method of fishing is even mentioned. With the Jews and the fishermen of Galilee, it was always a net. This is the only time a hook is mentioned. He says, take, it's so interesting, take a hook, single hook. You don't need to catch, you know, 150 fish to get one with something in his mouth. You just go throw the one hook. Now, they say even today there are at least 10 million fish in the Sea of Galilee at any given time. 
And this particular fish is a tilapia. You guys like tilapia? Any of it? You know, they call it St. Peter's fish over there. And it goes all the way down through North Africa, this family of fish. But one of the interesting things about this family of fish is when when their eggs hatch and they have young tilapainis or whatever they are, the, are hanging around, when, when there's a threat or there is some type of aggressor, the baby tilapia run into the mother's mouth. The mother opens the mouth and they go in there and they're protected. She doesn't swallow them or anything. It's just a place of protection. What happens, though, then, is those uh, tilapia become teenagers. You don't want a teenager in your mouth. So what the mom does is she picks up a stone or something from the bottom, and she holds it there so the kids can't get in. And quite often it's something brighter or something white. So this, this is a stator that fell into the water. It's a silver, weighs almost an ounce of silver. It's exactly what two people would give for their tribute, remarkably. There's lots of questions here. Who dropped the stator into the water? How, what sovereignty of God was involved for somebody? You don't lose anybody who lost an ounce of silver was diving for it, putting on their goggles and trying to find it. You know, who dropped this into the water in the first place? This And this fish picks this thing up and has it in its mouth so the youngins can't get in. But whatever Peter has on his hook is so appetizing that this fish tries to hold the coin in and bite the bait at the same time. Imagine humans are never like that, are they? They try to hold on what they got and get the bait at the same time. So, you know, here's this fish, servant of the Lord, had babies at just the right time. Stator gets dropped in the Sea of Galilee at the right time. Fish picks up at the right time. Jesus said, I know that fish, Peter. Doesn't tell Peter that, but go on down, throw one hook in. I know who we're going to see today. And by the way, Peter, after you get the coin, let the fish go. He probably said that. It doesn't say it here. Throw it back in, would you please? It's my servant. And uh, and he says, when you pull it up, it's going to have a coin in his mouth. And when you have opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. It's a stator. It's a piece of silver. He says to him, that take and give unto them for me and for thee. It, 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 it equaled the exact amount of tribute for two people. And now you can see why Matthew records this. He was a tax gatherer. He ain't never seen nothing like this before. And knowing Peter, he was probably down at the same spot the next day with a hook again, you know, trying to get, you know. So you just think how remarkable this is and how the Lord comes from the mountaintop in glory with Moses and Elijah, comes back down to demons and tax gatherers. But this is just as glorious in some ways. He stoops to us. We owe something. And because he doesn't want to stumble anybody, he helps us make good on what that is. Sometimes we're stubborn and don't want to do it. But he will help us make good on something from his reservoir of wealth. Sometimes it's patience that we need. Sometimes when it, here it was this piece of silver. You know, isn't it amazing that he stoops all the way down to where we are? And he says, I'm the king. I don't have to pay. I'm the king's kid, not required of me. I I feel that way in traffic sometimes. Somebody cuts me out, and I think, I'm the king's kid. You don't know who I am. If you did, you wouldn't cut me out. And I don't have to be nice right now. Yes, I do. (laughs) I'm going to, you know. You just think, you know, you just think of this lesson so that we're the king's kids And certain times we should do things, not because we have to, because we don't want to stumble somebody else. We don't want to stumble somebody else. And then he gets the glory, you know. Uh, Easy to read, not easy to do all the time. In chapter 18 it says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus. Now, it's Mark 
that gives us, kind of sets the stage here. Uh, It tells us this, And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the way? And they held their peace. For by the way, they had been arguing about among themselves about who would be the greatest. And uh, he sat down and then he called the twelve to himself. So the background of this is they're on their way, probably to the house of Peter, and they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. You know, we don't know whether they're saying, what went on up there? You went up there, your guys are up there for a couple of days. And they're going, can't tell you. Uh, we have information you're not allowed to have yet, but uh, there's good reason he picked us and left you behind. You know, whatever it might be, they're arguing now about who's going to be the greatest. They didn't hear him say, son of man's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over, he's going to be killed. They have a completely different picture. He had said to them, look, you want to follow me and you take up your cross. You want to be my disciple and follow me. They're, they, they haven't got it yet, so they're arguing along the way about who's going to be the greatest. And it, evidently when he turns around and looks at them, they go... They stop like kids do, you know, in the backseat of the car. And then when he turns around, they start again. So he then, at this time, the same time, the disciples then say to him, who, now the Greek is, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? So no doubt they're responding to something he said. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Look, look, people who are arguing in the church, in the kingdom, about being the greatest, they are the greatest. They're the greatest dividers. They're the greatest at sowing discord and division. People who are arguing for their position or they're arguing over who's the greatest or the greatest dividers, he's, they're saying now, well, then who is the greatest? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, I love this, he called a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them. Now, Jesus called him, and evidently he came. You know, he's on the mountain of glory. He comes down, and in his humanity, he's so inviting and so unpretentious that he can say to a little kid, come on over here. And the kid doesn't hesitate. He comes. And it says, Jesus then takes him and sets him in the midst. He's going to say, this is your example. Because he's content where I placed him. I called him. He responded. When he responded, he took him and he put him somewhere. And the kid was content with where he was placed. That's the problem the disciples have and that you and I have so much of the time. He's willing to be placed, the kid. He comes remarkably. I love that. There's, a, you know, kids, there's a simplicity. They're still growing, you know, they're dependent, they're submissive. The, the kid comes and Jesus set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, truly, I say unto thee, that except you be converted and become as, not childish, but childlike, you become as little children, you shall not, not, is the way it's written, enter into the kingdom. Now, it's it's an interesting passage. He says, unless you're converted, that's a passive. That's not something they do. It's something... They that that happens in their life, a genuine conversion. He's going to say to them, you're not going to see what you want. You're going to understand the kingdom. He says, and unless you're converted, arid is passive once and for all, this happens to you, this conversion experience. You're not, it's not, not, it's the oime. There's no way you, you will never, ever, enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's a really interesting picture here. You know, they're arguing about the greatest. They don't understand he's going to the cross. They haven't been listening to him. He puts a little kid there and he said, look, he said, unless you're converted, isn't it wonderful we've been converted? I, I remember the night I was converted. Do you remember your spiritual birthday? I wasn't, uh, I didn't enlist. I was drafted. 
and he changed my life. And uh, I'm child, childish sometimes, and hopefully childlike. Uh, he says, except you be converted and become as little children, you will never ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who yields to the king, the one who is yielded, who who, who might give you know give himself to the Lord. And whoso shall be who receive one such little child. Now he said, unless you're converted and become as little children. So certainly there's something here Jesus is going to say about little children. Uh, certainly the scripture talks about stumbling a child. But our context, you don't want to lose it. The little child is the person of the, the picture of the person that's been converted as well as we go into this. He says, whosoever shall uh, receive um, such little child in my name, he receives me. Look, that's true of kids, first of all. You know, we're told in the Psalms, lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the, of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Some of us quiver full was one, some of us quiver full was ten, depending on the grace extended. He said, and then again he says, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, and thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed who feareth the Lord. So there's something very innate and something you know, very divine in the process. He doesn't say everybody has to be a parent. That's not what he's saying. Some people are given the ability to remain single. But he says there is something about children. He says he hates divorce in Malachi because he wants out of a marriage a godly seed, it says, the next generation uh, to walk with him. The church is always one generation from extinction. So he says here, whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name, he received me. He's so wrapped up in, in, with the life of a new believer, with the life of a child. But, in contrast, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. That's how he, the context he gives us. Whoever offends one of these little ones that believe in me it would be better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So, you know, we're, we don't expect this from, you know, precious Jesus, meek and mild. You know, he's more like the, the Godfather than Father God here. He says, who shall, shall offend with these little ones? Look. Certainly new believers, people rip them off, people take advantage of them. You know, he warns against that here. That person would think of doing that. And look at our culture. Look at what we're indoctrinating the next generation children into. Look at the way they're being exposed to insanity. Again, fastest growing group of pornography users in America are 11 to 13-year-olds. Just think of that. Again, and I mention it often, 50% of kindergarten kids have mobile devices, and 50% of them have already been on a pornographic site. One out of four kindergarten kids. Just imagine the fruit of that in, in 10 years without fathers in the home and so forth. He says, he says, whosoever shall offend, stumble, that's our word for stumbling in stone again, one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better, preferable. We're going to have this word better several times here. It would be better for him that a millstone, and he uses the specific word for the millstone pulled by the oxen or the donkey. In fact, if you read it right from the Greek, it says the donkey millstone were hanged around his neck. There were two millstones. There was the hand millstone you used to grind grain. Then there was the bigger one that weighed a couple hundred pounds that the donkey would pull around and grind the grain. Usually the oxen were for plowing. 
And uh, that's the millstone he picks out here. It would be better for him if the big 300-pound millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's preferable, he says, to what he's going to talk about. So you're stumbling a kid. You're doing it better to have the old, big old millstone tied around your neck. And the interesting thing is, of course, for the Jews... Their means of execution was stoning, not drowning. That was, but in the world they lived, the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Phoenicians all did practice drowning. Um, they were seafarers. Solomon had a navy. We don't hear much about Israel having any type of functioning navy at this time when Rome is ruling the world. But the Greeks and the Phoenicians and the Egyptians were famous for taking you out when you're out in the Mediterranean, which is deeper. The deepest spot in the Sea of Galilee is 141 foot deep. Now, you don't feel real good with a millstone around your neck at 141 foot of water either. That's the, you know, the idea. Is, uh, but they were familiar with this, and it was horrifying for the, the Greeks or the Phoenicians or the Egyptians to, to tie a huge stone around somebody's feet or their neck and just throw them overboard, and they're gone. Down and down and down and down. I don't even like to think about that. Right? Do you like to think about that? Then don't mess with little kids. I mean, there's an important lesson here. <clears throat> Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better, preferable for him to have the big millstone hanged about his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, scandal on, the bait they put on the trap, for it must needs be that offenses come. This is not my kingdom. This is the world. But woe to the world because of the way they offend and they destroy life. Look, all around us that goes on continually. You know, uh, you, you look, just you look in the schools from the times, not, not only are, you know, they rewriting history and all these things. We've got enough, you know, technology that they know that evolution could never happen. They know that in the schools. The professors know that in the universities. It's an impossibility. Again, the the, the code is a, is is a a digital code, not an analog code. Somebody had to program it. But if you you know you teach a whole generation of kids, you got here from the monkeys or wherever. You have no purpose. There's no divine call. We learned that from Darwin, who was a racist, by the way, if you study him. So here you are without a purpose. Why not commit suicide? Here you are in school. You got here, you used to be an amoeba, you used to be in pond scum. Now you're a kid without a purpose, ended up in the world. Um, so why not kill yourself? Why not have no value on your life? Why not feel, no, on, the, on the, the side of truth, every human being at conception is a creation, at conception, with a purpose and with a calling. Everyone, And that adds purpose to life. <clears throat> he says, woe unto the world, because offenses, stumbling, it must needs be that offenses will come. That's the world we're living in. But then he brings it down to the individual. But woe to that man by whom the offenses come. It's a warning. Woe unto the man. Wherefore, if thy hand... Or thy foot offend thee, and these are imperatives, cut it off once and for all and throw it away from you once and for all. Get rid of it. Throw it away. For here's the next better. For it is better. Now it was better to have the millstone before. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Ionion, eternal fire. It talks about the eternal spirit, the eternal God. That's the idea here, being cast into eternal flames. Uh, so he says here, look, 
the world's offensive. But that's different. Woe unto the individual who deliberately offends. He said, rather than do that, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. It's better, preferable, again, that you go through life maimed than to end up in eternal fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out, imperative again, and throw it away from thee. Again, it is better. There's the next better. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into, now he says, hell, fire, Gehenna, fire, eternal fire. Um, Jesus never taught. There was no such thing. He He never taught annihilationism that you cease to exist. In fact, Jesus, out of the 12 times in the New Testament that specifically talk about hell, 11 times it's Jesus. In fact, he did, people say it, it's true, he talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Because he's rest, he came to rescue. He came, he understood how high the stakes were, and he came to do that. He says then, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels always do behold the face. So he's saying you have to understand there's divine involvement, these little ones. You know, uh, I remember the story. I, I can't remember the pastor's name in England, uh, but he, he had worked on planning a church. He had done it for a while. The church never got off the ground, you know, and never really went anywhere. And finally he talked to the, his, the organization said, I, I'm going to retire when I hand in my residence. He said, when you... What are you talking about? And he said, he said, I've labored here for all these years. I haven't seen a single salvation but little Jimmy Moffat. Little Jimmy Moffat would turn Africa upside down as a missionary. You think of Susanna Wesley. You know, she, her... Uh, Her parents had 25 kids, so Susanna Wesley swore she'd never do that. She had 19. And uh, Susanna Wesley, by the time she was 13, had taught herself Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Six of her kids died of cholera and different things. She committed them all to the Lord at the grave. She said with the 19 kids in the house, sometime her only way she'd get alone was she pulled her petticoat above her head. She pulled her skirt or dress up. That was the only way she'd get away from 19 kids. But two of those rascals were John and Charles Wesley. Better take heed you don't despise one of those little ones. In fact, her husband would talk about the new birth. She thought he was crazy. John and Charles started to preach at the outside meetings, and people started to get saved, and she constantly heard her son say, you need to be born again. And it wasn't until about two months before she died kneeling at the Anglican church at the altar to take communion when the priest said the blood of Christ shed for you, she broke down and she got saved. She knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. She had a husband who was witnessing to her. She committed six kids to the Lord when they died. But her conversion, it wasn't real until that moment. You think of Jeremiah saying this and I love to look at it. He says, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. That's way back. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I set your life aside. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I'm a child. But the Lord said unto me, say not, I'm a child. For thou shalt go unto all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. He says, Take heed, you don't despise because it's a little Spurgeon or a little Fanny Crosby or a little Wesley or a little Jimmy Moffat. You know, you know, God entrusts them to us. Our culture has lost the sense of that completely. 
We farm them out. We let them sit and, and watch nonsense and trash. And, you know, who's taking the time? And it's wonderful for us as Christians to be able to, to do that, to teach them, you know, songs from the time they're little, to have them sing in veggie tales when they're two or something. I don't know. But just, you know, praise baby, which is a mom saver. And just from the time they're little, to talk to them about the Lord and have them grow into those things and see them then come to that age of serving the Lord, you know. And it's the same thing spiritually with the new believer, to take them, to raise them, to feed them, to nurture them, to pick them up and dust them off when they fall, and they will, because you do too. And uh, he says, take heed to yourself that you despise not one of these little ones, he says, For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Now this doesn't necessarily teach that every kid has a guardian angel. I like that idea and particularly with some of your kids you like more than others that they have a guardian angel, I understand. But it doesn't negate it either. The idea is he's saying angels are involved. Heaven's involved with these little ones, watching over them um, and, and seeing them come. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. You know, there's a great value on those little ones. So angels, a uh, wonderful thing to realize that our kids, and I've heard story after story. I, I was a kid uh, around five years old when I saw angels in the bedroom for about 20 minutes. And it just, I was was warm. It was not fearful. It was overwhelming. Uh, good Bill, Bill Gowden is the son. He said his kid was outside and it was kind of dark and it was strange. There were strange people in the neighborhood. He said, I went out to get him and he said he was saying, Dad, do you see it? He said, I was looking around. See what? What are you talking about? He said, No, I don't see nothing. What are you talking about? He said, The angels. Look at the angels. He said, My hair stood up. I grabbed him and drug him into the house, you know. Uh, we've heard story after story remarkable. Read Billy Graham's book on angels. So he says heaven is involved. Heaven was involved on the transfiguration. Heaven was involved with a father that thought everything in his life was a disaster. What did that father and son have after that? And do you think the father ever looked back and say, you know, I wish that never would have happened. I wish you had been healthy your whole life. No, because the father wouldn't have been saved and the boy wouldn't have been saved. Stooping all the way down to collecting taxes and saying, look, the greatest in the kingdom is the one, you should say in other places, who is servant of all. You have to become as a child. You have to be dependent. You have to trust somebody else to take care of you. There has to be a simplicity and a naivety in some ways. This world, it's set up to stumble. That's what this world's about. But woe to the individual who gives himself deliberately to undermining the faith of a child or a new believer, someone else. He says, you know, better for him uh, first to be thrown into the ocean with a millstone around his neck. Better for him to go into heaven maimed. Better for him to go into heaven with one eyeball. We, and we spent more time on this in uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you want to go back, we talked about people who cut off their hands and plucked out their eyes, and I knew a few of those. So if you really want to look at it deeper, you can go back there. Or you might just be glad we're past that and not talking about it. But, uh, you know, better for them to, to enter life maimed or with one eye than to face eternal fire, than to face the fire of Gehenna, which is literal. And he says, so be careful. You don't despise one of these little ones because... Your father set angels over them. Heaven's involved, watching their lives, caring for them, protecting them. Amen? You get a chance? You know, they say, you know, that Hebrew mothers, from the time a baby was old enough to nurse, which is right away, would be whispering the name of Jehovah into the ear of the babe, you know? Uh, Jesus is sweeter than that. So parents do that now. Read ahead. Some great things ahead of us. If the Lord tarries, if he doesn't, that's better. You can talk to Matthew yourself. 
but be reading ahead as we as we move through here. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, I know you've overheard, and we just enjoy journeying through these things, Lord, that you put before us. And Lord, those who have struggled, those who have, uh, particularly, Lord, maybe somewhere, somewhere else in the world or in the country or here in our own church that's had a a very difficult role to play as a caregiver in the life of someone, a child or someone who's very needy, Lord, strengthen them, Lord, remind them of these things, Lord, that you're near and that you care. Lord, those of us maybe that's struggling just to to do something and we know we don't have to, and Lord, you have a nevertheless, a notwithstanding for that situation. We're much more selfish than you are, Lord. So help us when we come to those places. And Lord, grant us childlikeness. In these days when it seems like we got to have everything together to survive as we watch the news, watch everything going on around us, Lord, give us a, a gracious, gracious childlikeness in our faith, Lord. And help that to be contagious, Lord. We know there are people who deliberately would undermine and stumble. Help us to be life givers, Lord, on your behalf. We put these things before you and we pray in your name. Amen.